The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome a friend and fabulous author and writer, Mr. Andy Tomalanis. He is actually a longtime organic gardener, a former produce manager for a national grocery chain, a part-time hobby farmer, an award-winning Boston-area journalist and author of a book that we are going to be talking about today called Organic Hobby Farming, A Practical Guide to Earth-Friendly Farming in Any Space. I had the pleasure of meeting Andy on an educational trip to Cuba, which focused on food, health, and agriculture, and we became acquainted. And when I found out about his beautiful book, I thought, We need to have a conversation because everyone is just probably itching to get their hands in the soil right now. So welcome, Andy. It's great to have you. Great to be here, Melinda. Well, we should start by explaining that you have been doing horticulture journalism for a long time. And did that precede your work with food? What came first? So when I got out of journalism school, I had been working at a grocery store, and so When I graduated from journalism school, the jobs weren't always available. So what I did is work the summer as a produce manager. And then I became a traveling produce manager that went in and filled up for everybody's vacations on Cape Cod. And so it was great. It was a lot of fun. It introduced me to food. And I always had an appreciation for the growers as I was opening all these big cases of beautiful carrots and giant heads of lettuce. You got to see the pick of the crop. And I always wanted to grow my own. Uh Uh-huh. So what came next? So then, you know, I ended up getting into journalism, and I'd always been a gardener, too, something I learned really from my grandfather when he lived with us on Cape Cod. And he came and and built a small garden, and I followed a lot of his ways. He was uh, from the old country, Lithuania, and so he had a lot of what are techniques today that you would use in organic farming. He saved all his produce and all his scraps and, and composted them. He didn't call it compost. He just put them in a pile and then buried it in the soil. So it was really interesting to learn about organic farming and think back, you know, I used to do that with gramps out in our backyard. <laughs> it was kind of neat. So I became a longtime gardener. And then when I worked at the Boston Herald, that was for about 15 years, I ran their, their night news desk. And I started writing a gardening column for them. It was called The Dirt Cheap Gardener and, you know, had a great name and uh, a pretty good following. And so I wrote about gardening for that. And then I left the Herald and came to New Bedford, where I work now at the Standard Times of New Bedford, and I run their website. So I stayed with gardening and stayed with growing and stayed with writing about gardening, but I left the Herald, so I started writing for Hobby Farms magazine. And that went well. I wrote a couple of their magazine books on organic farming. And then they approached me to write a book a while back. Well, it's a beautiful book. But one of the things that I thought was so interesting about your experience with getting your hands into gardening and writing about it is that you don't have a big piece of property And yet, you were able to create, as you say, in a bio that is up on the Authors Guild, over the years, I've turned my backyard garden into an efficient food 
factory, and you actually signed up neighbors, coworkers, and friends to have a community-supported agriculture program in your backyard. Yeah, that was pretty amazing, and it was not without a lot of work. And I did not quit my day job to do that, so we really had only weekends to do it. But I got started in doing that part, in becoming a commercial farmer, because the book that I wrote was called Organic Hobby Farming, and I decided to join NOFA, the Organization for Organic Gardening and Farming, here in New England, and that's the the Northeast Organic Farming Association, NOFA. And you have Moses, I think, out in the Midwest. That's right. Uh, and, And that's a great place, and that's Midwest Organic Sustainable Education Service, I think. But they do very much the same thing. They promote organic growing, and they have these conferences and classes and workshops. So I started going to those workshops to meet farmers and find out, you know, what they were all about and and to find out some new organic techniques that maybe I wasn't using. And so some of the people that I met, actually many, were not really full-scale organic farmers. They were people who owned land, excess land. They had an old farm or pasture land that they weren't farming, and they wanted to know how to get started. So I decided to write that as the book. Mm-hmm. And my mission was to tell readers step-by-step step how they could turn their land into a small-scale organic farm. And not just a hobby farm, but a bona fide micro-scale commercial farm. So wow. we haggled a little bit about the outline of the book, and then I uh, changed the outline and decided, okay, I'm going to do that as a guide. And so I wanted to make sure that what I was writing was really authentic, that, yes, I could do this. I wasn't just presenting theory. So I converted my one-acre residential lot in suburbia into a small-scale farm, <laughs> uh, this commercial farm. And, you know, I couldn't write about farming unless I became a farmer first. And so I did that. And we decided, because we both worked day jobs, the only way for us to market our food would be CSAs because the weekends we would not be able to go to a farm stand or a farmer's market to sell our goods. We'd have to be working on our gardens, actually. Yeah. So we charged neighbors $500 for the season, and we provided them with vegetables from Memorial Day to Columbus Day, and we really did produce enough food for eight families. That is such an amazing story. So I want to just back up and remind our listeners that CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture, and I'll ask you to define that exactly, what that means, the relationship between the grower and the consumer. And then also, just to piggyback on that, could you also define what is a hobby farm? So compare the two. Yeah, that's a little bit difficult on what is actually a hobby farm. I think I have a different definition than some do. Well, CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture, as you said. It's basically a way of investing in the farm before the season begins. For the farmer, it's great because, you know, you get the money up front and you can use it to buy seeds, to hire help, and and do all the work that you need to do before the harvest comes and you can sell it. So you pay in advance, and we charged $500 for the season, and then what you do then is your investment in the farm results in getting a weekly share of the produce from the farm. So for us, it was a whole lot of different things. We we really didn't want to just give people zucchinis in the middle of summer. We prided ourselves on having a variety of foods so that we could produce about 15 different items for each week's CSA share. And that really taught us a lot about the discipline about how to farm. And I think that presenting that as a model for a beginning farmer was a little bit difficult. 
And so I explain that in my book, that it's one way to market your produce, and it works well for a lot of farmers, but it is a ton of work. You yeah. really, and there's responsibility because if you take somebody's money up front and then you're going to promise them that you're going to provide them with produce for the whole season, you can't just have bad tomatoes and you can't have like a, a little tiny baggie full of string beans. You have to have a lot of variety, good food to make it worth a while. Because two things, you don't want to make your customers dissatisfied with your performance. You know, you don't want to do that. And you don't want to give a bad name to the really great marketing product that's a CSA. So many farmers do it. You have a responsibility to fellow farmers to live up to the ideals of providing good quality organic food from an organic CSA. Mm-hmm. So we called it Mother Clucker's Micro Farm. We do have a, a yes, that's the name. My wife thought of it, not me. <laughs> And so there's a Facebook page if you want to take a peek at some of the produce that we have. We sold vegetables, fruit, herbs, eggs, honey, and my wife's a beekeeper, and she also makes soap and provides some other value-added goods. Wow. Um, so early in the season, it was greens, lettuces, arugula, scallions, all, all kinds of early crops. This summer, we went to regular veggies that most people think of with blueberries, blackberries, zucchinis, Asian pears you know, a whole bunch of different crops. And then late in the year, we started providing, in addition to the summer crops, some of the fall crops. And then we learned to plant a second season of cold-weather crops so that we could harvest, you know, right into October. Uh-huh. You know what I think is so interesting, Andy, is that because of your experience working in a produce department and managing the produce area, you know how critically important handling is. And I wonder, as a CSA farmer, you've got these families dependent on you. Did you have to go through some sort of food safety certification? No, and I don't think that a lot of them do, but you have a responsibility, of course, to do that. If you are organic, and there's a difference between being an organic gardener and an organic farmer, and the difference is profound. I mean, you could basically say, I'm going to use only natural pesticides, or I'm not going to use many pesticides, and call yourself mostly natural. Yeah. But if you're going to call yourself organic as a gardener, you can do anything, but if you're going to call yourself organic as a farmer who is really selling your crops, you have to adhere to the USDA standards, and they're bare. There are a lot of work, especially for a first-time farmer who may be converting from being a gardener into a farmer. You really have to understand all of the rules and regulations, how to make compost, You know when you can put down manure, how much time you have to wait to make sure the manure is safe and it doesn't transmit any bacteria to the food. There's washing requirements. So being a part of a certified organic operation or even just understanding what it is to be certified organic will help you in a great way as far as uh, treating your uh, crops mm-hmm. and handling them to make sure that there's no problems. We set up an outdoor sink and washed everything. We washed it with a hose down at the garden and then brought it up and had an outdoor sink where we washed everything. And it's all explained in the book. But that was probably the biggest safety concern is understanding the rules of organic. And then did you have to have a refrigeration area? What we did is we had people come and pick it up while it was fresh. So we had a pickup day. We harvested it in the morning, and either I brought it into work and gave it to a couple of coworkers at 10 o'clock or 9 o'clock in the morning, and there was a big refrigerator here. They either brought it home at that time or they put it in the refrigerator till the end of the day. Uh-huh. So it stayed. It kept well, and because the vegetables are so fresh, 
you're really getting something that's picked in the morning, you know, when the, the temperature's still cool so it doesn't dry out very quickly. It helps to have all those little farming techniques in your toolkit so that you can understand how to make your produce last a long time. Mm -hmm. I agree with you with regard to the importance of using organic methods, and you have a section in your book about that and why it's important to you, and I totally agree. It's not just about the eater. It's about, of course, the future of the planet, and there's so many benefits, so it's worth that extra bit of knowledge and skill. But you've got the hobby farmer. You've got the food factory, kind of the more industrial models. How would you describe a hobby farmer versus another small family farmer? Okay, well, I'll go back to the people that I met at the Northeast Organic Farming Association conferences. And some of them were people who derived an income from their properties or wanted to derive an income, but they weren't totally reliant on them. And that's the difference is if you're a farmer... It's your major source of income. But if you've read USDA surveys recently, you know that more than half of the farmers have an off-farm income yeah. today. And it's because that's where they get their insurance. Uh, so we have maybe the man of the house or the woman of the house ends up working in the farm out in the fields, and the other spouse goes to work out somewhere in the community and has a job with family health benefits. Right. Uh, so that helps. But when you're doing it just for fun or for a second income, and you're not 100% dependent on that income to meet your daily budget, your weekly or your annual budget for the household, I think you can classify that as a hobby farmer, even if you make money at it, mm-hmm. uh, because you're not fully involved and dependent with the desperations that you find with some farmers who just have to get the crop to make money to put their kids through college. Exactly. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Mr. Andy Tomalanis. He is the author of a terrific book that I've got here in my hands called Organic Hobby Farming, A Practical Guide to Earth-Friendly Farming in Any Space. And I emphasize any space. The reason why I love this book personally is because I'm not overwhelmed by it. You show me step-by-step how to raise foods that I would like to feed my family. And I think for so many people who struggle with the budgets, and who doesn't anymore, the idea of putting quality, fresh, organic food on the table because we can grow some of it ourselves is incredibly empowering. It is empowering, and I've I've done that talk on empowering families to take control of their food sources as part of being an organic farmer. And, again, a hobby farmer might be somebody who is close to being a homesteader or who also just provides all the food for their family and then maybe sells it or trades it to somebody else or just is not 100% dependent upon the income from your farm. Maybe you just get some secondary income. So one of the things that we did is I built raised beds. Mm -hmm. That helped with the the production in a small area. And we really did it intensely. I mean, a lot of timing so that if you plant one crop and you know the harvest is going to start fading, you pull it up, get rid of it, and get another crop in the ground or get a cover crop or or add compost to the soil and plant again. And that's a a method from Elliot Coleman, who was uh, one of my mentors, uh, And he's a very popular and knowledgeable organic farmer in Maine, and he's the author of several books. And another writer that I like a lot is uh, John Givons, 
Mm-hmm. Who are, is it Jevons or Jevons? I'm not sure, but he wrote the book How to Grow More Vegetables Than You Ever Thought Possible on Leslie. And it, it's such a long subtitle, but it's How to Grow More Vegetables Than You Ever Thought Possible. Yeah. Um, and he uses a lot of raised beds, too. But I had been using raised beds since the days of being a gardener and following Bob Thompson and other gardening experts who had limited space and used high-yield production methods to get more out of the land. Mm -hmm. Well, each of the chapters are extremely informative. So chapter one, we're going to start out, we're going to assess our land. Chapter two, we're going to talk about tools. Chapter three, we're going to talk about the soil, compost, and cover crops. There's a chapter on planning and organizing the farm and what kinds of seeds we're going to use. Are we going to transplant seeds? How are we going to guard against insects and weeds? You've got a discussion on heirlooms and hybrids and all the different kinds of varieties of produce that I think that is the beauty of being a home gardener or a hobby farmer is that we don't have to rely on the few varieties that we might see at the grocery store. We can really have fun. And in one of your blogs, and I have to recommend your blog to our listeners, The Dirt Cheap Gardener, because you just did a review of the different seed catalogs and the best places to buy seed. And I wanted to ask you about that. I don't want to buy seed from a company that's been bought out by one of these big agribusiness, agrochemical firms. I want to buy seeds, preferably that are organic, and that have a little variety that I might not be familiar with. Talk about the best way to purchase seeds. Okay, I have, I, and I think catalogs are the way to go. They they really are. You get a catalog, and most of these companies have online catalogs. You just go online and you can search through all the different varieties of crops and, and look at them at your computer or, you know, or on your laptop. And some of them, but one of my favorites is Fedco Seeds. And it's a co-op and it's in New England. And if you go to Fedco Seeds, F-E-D-C-O Seeds, you'll be able to just put that in a Google engine and find them. You can type your zip code in and then your email address and it will keep you on file so that you could start placing an order you know, go through all your stuff and then say, oh, I'm tired, I'm going to come back and finish this later. And it will save all that for you. And then you come back and you don't have to start your order all over again. Mm-hmm. So that's one of my favorites. And they do sell a lot of organic seeds. They're untreated seeds. They don't have fungicides. And they don't use GMO seeds. And there are plenty of uh, heirloom varieties. And a lot of them have been tested by local farmers. So this is a great source in New England. And I think um, really anywhere, you know, in that zone 6, area, which if you look at a, a USDA map, really encompasses the whole middle of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a great source for seeds. And another one that I like a lot, and this is the one that you should always get, the, the print catalog. It's terrific varieties, some organic and some non-organic, but incredible depth of information on the size, the planting schedule, the timing, the different varieties, how long it is to come to harvest. And that is Johnny's Selected Seeds. I found them to be a little more expensive than other seed catalog companies, but it's worth it. I always order from Johnny's just so, kind of to pay them back for having such an informative catalog Mm -hmm. uh, because it's really terrific. It's a beautiful catalog. So those are two of my favorites. uh, Baker Creek Heirlooms is another one. Right, Um, and they're in Missouri. High Mowing Organic Seeds is a good one. Out in California, there's a company, Peaceful Valley Farm and Garden Supply. 
Uh-huh. And that has or their their website is just groworganic.com. And they sell a lot of supplies too at a, at a fairly good price. Mm-hmm. And then you should also sign up with your local organic farming organization, whether it's Mofka Maine Organic Farming and Gardening Association, Moses out in the Midwest or or Nofa here in uh, in New England in the Northeast because they often sell vegetables, seed potatoes and other supplies through a co-op, and you get a great price on it. Plus, you get the knowledge of talking to people to know which works best. So right. all of that is really valuable. Yeah, and I don't want any seeds or seed potatoes that have been treated with fungicides. So mm-hmm. it, that's another great reason to join with a local group of organic farmers. And also, what I have found at meetings, organic farmers are so willing to share their aha moments that they've had, like succession yeah. planting or, or companion planting, so that you do really get good results and reduce pests. It's true. It's it's one of the few businesses where there's a, such a collegial feeling a, among farmers that they will want to take you aside and tell you their secrets. Yeah. You know, here it is. This is how to grow the best stuff. Use use compost at this time of year. Make compost tea. Do this or or do that. And I, I come in contact with a lot of farmers. One of the, the love I have for local growers actually prompted me to become a, a board member for the Southeastern Massachusetts Agricultural Partnership, CMAP. And we work with farmers, you know, and run the, uh, grant programs and a lot of other incentives to get people to go buy their foods at farm stands and uh, from local farmers. So, yes, organic farmers are, are really great. You know, all farmers are... are uh, are different kinds of people uh, down to the earth. <laughs> right. Pun, but yeah, right. organic farmers I find especially so. I agree. All right, let's talk about next steps. So we're right at that part of the year where most people in the United States are looking at getting their gardens going. What kind of tools are must-haves for you or would you recommend for the gardener just getting started? Well, I think that tools, you'd want to make sure you have a good a good hoe and a good rake, uh, something to till the soil. I don't think you should go out and buy, a, a, you know, a big rototiller. There are newer studies that say, you know, that point out that repeated tilling of land actually damages the soil. It fluffs it up, but then it can be packed down. It kills some of the soil organisms. So I think you could till once, you know, you rent a tiller, till once to to, to get clear the ground and clear out the rocks and then, you know, smooth it out and then to mix in organic material. But after that, especially if you have raised beds, you don't have to, to go in and till. You, you know, you you rake in new soil and the earthworms come up to the top and bring it down. And so you plant a little bit of compost with each of the uh, seedlings that you put into the ground. So, you know, I think that tilling is, is overrated. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wouldn't run out and buy, you know, spend a lot of money on a, a big rototiller. Okay. Um, but, you know, hand tools are great. And as you find which hand tools work better, maybe you expand and get bigger. You can look at, and I think I, rec- I recommend this in the book too, you can decide after you've started which tools you really, really need to get. And, and then you can start, you know, investing in those slowly mm-hmm. so that you don't run out and buy a whole bunch mm-hmm. to get started. One of the biggest questions or issues that comes up every time I speak to a farmer, say at the farmer's market, and I ask, you know, are you raising your produce organically? And 
they'll say, oh, no, I can't do that. I have to use pesticides because otherwise I wouldn't have a crop. And here you are a perfect example of being able to feed eight families without harmful pesticides. What do you tell people when they say, gosh, we have to have these pesticides to grow our food? You know, I'm not that critical of a farmer who doesn't subscribe to all organic methods. I find a lot of them use integrated pest management. Mm -hmm. So that's using tools to go out into the field and monitor the pests and use every other method first, physical barriers and other crop rotations and traps and other things to before you go to the last resort of pesticides. So a lot of the uh, university extension services all have a, they'll tell you for advice to monitor your crops. And then if you're going to spray with a harmful chemical, spray just once or twice and make sure that the spray works. Now, it's totally against the way I would do my own farm, but I feed eight families and I'm not dependent on that for my full income. So I'm less I'm just less critical of a farmer who's trying to make ends meet and if they haven't switched totally to organics yet, but they try to incorporate some organic techniques. Uh, So I'm not critical of them. But I do think for gardeners, it makes incredible sense. It just makes no sense to use chemicals. Every sense in the world to be organic because if you have ultimate control over your food, you have the choice of whether you want to eat poisons or pesticides or and then or spray pesticides and potentially harm yourself by breathing in the vapors or just raising things naturally. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you you you're safer to the environment, you're safer for yourself as a worker and you're safer for your own food. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, a start-out farmer should try to use as many organic techniques as possible. And especially in a small-scale operation. Well, Andy, I can't say enough good things about your book. I think it's a wonderful way for anybody, a beginner especially, to get started in producing more of their own food and feeling empowered and feeding their families in a healthy way. Is there anything you want to leave our listeners with? Oh, sure. First of all, I think I've mentioned it already, but you really should check out your local organic farming group. So if you're in in the Midwest, check out Moses. You can just go to their website and read through everything that they have, look at the programs. And it's surprisingly low cost. I, I mean, the NOFA for me is, is about $50 a year, and I absolutely get that money back by buying from the co-op. Mm-hmm. And then you can you get a reduced price to go to any of the conferences and, and learn, really learn about uh, organic techniques. And, and not all certified organic techniques because there's – you know, it's it's very difficult to maintain those standards, but to learn natural tricks and techniques and ways to make your your food safer. So I would definitely recommend that. I'd recommend checking out my blog. Uh, it, it's not always organic vegetable farming that I do on my blog. I sometimes go into you know water gardening. I have koi ponds and and a lot of other flower gardening and, and other ideas that I write about in my blog. That's uh, the Dirt Cheap Gardener. You can just find it by Googling Dirt Cheap Gardener. I put a hyphen in uh, between Dirt Cheap. Or the, the URL is blogs.southcoasttoday.com slash dirt cheap, one word. Well, Andy, I will make sure that our listeners have access to those links as well as 
the link to your book. So in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest, Mr. Andy Tamalanis, longtime organic gardener, journalist, and author of a terrific book called Organic Hobby Farming, A Practical Guide to Earth-Friendly Farming in Any Space. And I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Andy, thank you so much for being with me and for doing this work. Okay, thanks. This is terrific, Melinda.